Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The life and legacy of Father Joe Carroll. His legend lives on. It lives on in those very same people whom he touched. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A call to action to fix inequalities Latinas are facing in the workplace. Latinas are a third of all employed women in San Diego County. Employers really stand to gain a lot and lose a lot unless they really pay attention to this demographic group. How a water supply shortage is impacting those who depend on the Colorado River and the Cinema Junkie podcast is back. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. A San Diego icon has passed away. Father Joe Carroll, a Catholic priest who spent 40 years raising tens of millions of dollars to help the unsheltered, died at 80 Saturday. He will be remembered for turning a small charity that served peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the 80s into what's now called Father Joe's Villages, providing everything from housing to job training to thousands of people each year. San Diego has lost one of its legends and we have lost one of our best friends. But his legend lives on. It lives on in those very same people whom he touched. That was Jose Gonzalez, a longtime friend of Father Joe's. Joining us to talk more about Father Joe's legacy is Deacon Jim Vargas, president and CEO of Father Joe's Villages. Deacon Vargas, welcome. Thank you, Jade. It's good to be with you. You know, we all know what a gem Father Joe was and what a gem Father Joe's Villages is to this community. Take us back to how it all started. Before it was Father Joe's, it was St. Vincent de Paul's. Uh, When Father Joe first started there in the 80s, what was it like? Very different, as you can imagine. Uh, The situation of homelessness in general was different, but also the, the environment was very different. When he took over in 1982, it was... It was through a thrift store that St. Vincent de Paul Village had. And basically, he knew people were hungry. So he started handing out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Well, more and more people kept coming to him. He knew he needed to do much more than that. And he had the the charisma to be able to really encircle himself with individuals who fell in love with his vision of taking people off the streets, taking them off the streets and improving their situations. And so in time, within five years' time, 
he had amassed $12 million. And with that $12 million, he started the first building, the, the Joan Crock Center. And it was the first of its kind in the nation, actually, in that it provided the comprehensive services that individuals who are mired in homelessness needed. It wasn't just a matter of just those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It, you know, it was advanced to more nutritious meals. It also was in recognition of the fact that some individuals had health issues. So we established a medical clinic. And then he went on to care for their children, those who had children. They, they had special needs because of their situation of being out there on the streets and homeless. And he wanted them to be able to compete well with their peers in school so that they would not be, be the future homeless individuals on the, on the streets. And so he, he established a therapeutic child care center. Um, he realized that, that those who are on the streets need, needed income. Well, how do you have income? You have it through employment. How can you gain employment? Well, you need marketable skills. So he established an employment services center in order to be able to train individuals and then help them find jobs so that they could have the income to be self-sufficient. So there's just, so, you know, and so the shelter was just the basic, uh, Jade. It, he realized that there was much more than just shelter. So how would you describe Father Joe's impact on San Diego and homelessness in the city? Well, I, I think Father Joe's impact has been tremendous over the years. I mean, he was setting the stage for a new way of tackling this issue of homelessness. And, and as I mentioned before, in, in a comprehensive way, in a very holistic way, in a very unique way. So it's not applying the same standard across the board. It's realizing that people are at different stages of their lives and different stages of their situation. And, and as a result, meeting them where they, where they are. Um, so if, if, if someone uh, has just fallen onto hard times and just helping them pick themselves up from those hard times and applying the resources that they need, if it has to do with someone who's been chronically homeless, and there's a lot more at play. Well, then, it, then it's applying those resources. There might be health issues involved, uh, behavioral health concerns, and it's applying those resources that are that are necessary, and and a lot of others. So it may take a longer period of time, and just recognizing that it sometimes doesn't doesn't take on the first time, and that sometimes you have to work with people. Literally, you have to work with people sometimes for years, and and it, it, there's it could be that. You work for months before even engaging them and having them being able to to come into into your facility for services at all, because maybe there's distrust and and, and abuse in the past in their lives. And so it, it's it's again the impact that that he has had and, and continues to have has to do with how you treat these individuals as human beings and realizing they that they are uh, they're different. They reach different in their circumstances. And, you know, what was unique about Father Joe that enabled him to build Father Joe's to what it is today? I think what was unique about Father Joe was twofold, at least twofold anyway, right? Uh, one is that he had the charism to, and, and the vision to be able to impart that to others um, so that they, can, they came and they shared in his work in that vision. And he was able to convince them that this was God's work that it was very necessary and it was an obligation. It wasn't a nice thing to do. It was a must thing to do. And then on the other side of it, 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 it was how he cared for those entrusted to him. They uh, had confidence in him. They had faith in him. They believed that he wanted the best for them. And as a result, they were willing to put their trust in him that he could better their situation. And so those were two major 
facets, in a sense, of him that made a tremendous difference in his work. You you spoke to Father Joe about his ability to fundraise. Why did he say he was so successful at that? Well, first and foremost, I think he would just give the the credit to to God, right? I mean, and and he would say, "Well, I was successful because because God was in the midst of it all, right?" And I think first and foremost, he would say that. I um, I, I think um, pragmatically, the the reason he was successful is was his willingness to go out there. And make himself vulnerable in a sense, right? I mean, he he had the tag of the hustler priest, and that's a fancy way of saying that he was a beggar. And he and I had talked about that a, a lot of times. He did not mind going out there and begging for resources, financial and otherwise, because he wasn't doing it for himself. He had been entrusted with these souls who very much needed his help and depended upon him, and and that was a grave responsibility that he, that he had on his shoulders, and and so. That made it, he became, as a result, very facile of just going out there and begging for money and hustling for the resources that were necessary. You know, there's been a a surge in the number of people living on the streets uh, in downtown and likely across the county because of the pandemic. What advice, what wisdom will you be taking from Father Joe in addressing this current crisis? The the situation of homelessness in general and and specifically in San Diego, and when we look when we look downtown, um, especially you know the growing number of those who are on the streets, and and, and particularly of late in the last 15, 18 months or so, uh, primarily due because of COVID and and and, and the effect of that of uh, the pandemic, um, and and so it's a it's a matter of as Father Joe always did, it was a matter of meeting them on the streets, which is what we continue to do. I mean we through our outreach, through our street health, as an example, um, realizing that a lot of these individuals won't access traditional medicine in a traditional way in brick and mortar. And so it's going out to them and caring for them right there medically on on the curbs, building relationship with them. Father Joe was all about building relationship. That makes all the difference in the world. So it's building those relationships and then being able to, in time, then help them in in other ways, getting them then, then actually off the streets, providing the shelter that they need and the basics that they need, and then the additional resources in order to help them become self-sufficient. So at the heart of it all is still Father Joe's approach of meeting an individual where they are. It's not expecting them to to meet us where we are. It's meeting them where they are because that's, uh, that's how we can be most effective. I've been speaking with Deacon Jim Vargas, president and CEO of Father Joe's Villages. Deacon Vargas, thank you very much for joining us and sharing Father Joe's legacy today. Thank you so much, Shade. I, it's, it's my pleasure, and I, and I know people will want to celebrate his life, and we'll be announcing a celebration of life that, that will be public. It will be a public event. Uh, we'll have information about that in the, very, in the next few days, and people have been leaving flowers and and cards on 15th Street, and we encourage that as well. People who want to share stories online can do so as well by going on to our website. There's so many ways people have asked how can they express themselves. I've been asked about, you know, how do you, how do we, how do we continue his work? You know, so we we've established a legacy fund in his name to honor him and his work as well. And so there's that aspect. There's so many ways in which people can express their their love for for him, and and I would encourage that.
The pandemic brought upon a number of drastic changes to the American workplace, and in many cases, these changes prompted many to leave the workforce entirely. Latinas have left the workforce at rates higher than any other demographic and have had some of the highest unemployment rates throughout the pandemic, according to UCLA research. In response to this trend, Mana de San Diego and the Kim Center for Social Balance has released a snapshot summary of the issue in an effort to highlight the inequities that Latinas in the San Diego region face in the workplace. Joining me with more is Heyo Kim. Executive Director of the Kim Center for Social Balance. Heyo, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. So you are releasing the first ever regional report today on the status of Latinas in the workforce, and it measures inequalities. What have you found in your research? We have found that despite the fact that Mana de San Diego members tend to be in the upper echelons of professions, they are still experiencing the same kinds of barriers to career success as Latinas in all professional tiers. And that's worrisome, uh, considering that Latinas are a third of all employed women in San Diego County. Employers really stand to gain a lot and lose a lot unless they really pay attention to this demographic group. So what are some of the obstacles that are standing in the way? One of the biggest ones is representation. Over half of our participants, our survey participants, reported that there is not fair representation in leadership. And that serves several purposes. First of all, there's the visual affirmation that Latinas can be part of the leadership narrative in their organizations. And there's also the hand down effect, you know, the, uh, the mentorship and the opening of opportunities that Latinas can create for each other. And then, of course, the influence on our younger generations where they see what's possible. So how are Latinas being left behind, say, as the nation continues its economic recovery from the pandemic? Latinos are still falling behind in terms of rates of promotion, pay, as well as representation in positions and industries that pay more and have higher levels of respect, if you will. And that's not changing. Unfortunately, because Latinas were leaving the workforce in such high numbers because of COVID, that's actually getting worse. And as they come back into the workforce, employers are really going to benefit if they're able to pay attention to the needs of this group, not necessarily as a special group, but simply to, to implement practices and policies that ensure that uh, their promotions, their pay advances, their access to career advancement tools are fairly distributed and um, access is fairly offered. You know, there's growing speculation that there isn't so much of a labor shortage as there is a shortage of fair compensation and benefits for many workers. Does that play into what we're seeing with Latinas in the workforce at all? It does in a lot of ways. I mean, particularly when you're talking about benefits, uh, family leave, you know, in addition to basic state requirements, accommodations for flexibility, working from home when it works for people. Sometimes it doesn't work. Um, and that's that needs to be paid attention to as well. Um, 
a lot of these things can help Latinas and other groups. And let's be honest, it, we're really talking about women in general um, because women are the largest, I hate to say marginalized, you know, people in group in the workforce. And they're often the most uh, burdened with caregiving and other home responsibilities in addition to their work responsibilities. You know, this report is also a call to action. So how can the business community in the region support equity and equality for Latinas in the workforce? Absolutely. It's a call to action. Uh, Research says that if you want to make widespread cultural transformation, you really need to do it on the local level. But if you're going to do if you're going to have a a united community response, you need to have local data. So the Kim Center is launching a full regional assessment, the first of its kind, I think, in the country, actually, uh, sometime this later this year. And we are hoping that all employers will join forces with us, uh, elected officials, foundations, unions, you know, all our partners and would-be partners in the community will join forces with us. On a company-by-company basis, employers should really pay attention to the highlights that we um, point to in the report because every community is different, every company is different. So the highlights that we provide are at least a baseline for what San Diego is addressing. What we're addressing here is very different from what's happening in Tulsa, Oklahoma or New York City. So let's pay attention to what's going on here. And then to employers, I would urge you to do your own assessments. I've been speaking with Heyo Kim, Executive Director of the Kim Center for Social Balance. Heyo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. I'm really glad that you're calling attention to this. Your KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Listening to KPBS Midday Edition, I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh has the day off. The Colorado River is tapped out. It supplies 40 million people in the southwest, including in San Diego County. But a prolonged warming and drying trend has left the nation's two largest reservoirs at record lows. For the first time, a shortage will be declared by the federal government. Luke Runyon from KUNC traveled 1,400 miles of the river to get a sense of how those who rely on it are coping. The river starts on Colorado's western slope, where father and son Wayne and Brackett Pollard run cattle. Up on a sagebrush-covered hillside, we look down into the Rifle Valley, where the men use the river's water to grow hay. Typically, this would be high water. And it hasn't really come up at all. They list off all the superlatives that come with life in the West this year. Driest, hottest, lowest, worst. Last year was considerably dry. Maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. Our springs are starting to dry up, up on the mountain and everywhere. This dry spell comes with the usual lack of rain and snow and the relentless sun. And now a hot wind has arrived. Brackett says it's like someone is pointing a giant hairdryer at his pastures. It's just like sucking the moisture out even more so. 
Nearly all of the upper Colorado River Basin is experiencing severe drought or worse. Tributaries are running low and hot, and without enough feed, the region's ranchers are looking to sell. The Pollards plan to offload about half of their cows over the next few months. When you're looking at a, a serious loss of equity in, in really just rural America, in the rural West. So the first couple miles is going to be really choppy. About 250 miles downstream, the river becomes a massive reservoir, Lake Powell, where Sherry Fascinelli and husband Randy Redford are vacationing. The reservoir fills Glen Canyon, a maze of red rock on the Colorado Plateau. The lake is headed toward its lowest point since it was built. Fascinelli veers their speedboat into a side canyon. You know, places where you've boated for 20 years and gone flying over, all of a sudden now there's big islands and rocks. A stark white bathtub ring on the brick-colored walls looms over us. The record low level means its dam is generating less hydroelectric power, and it makes for a hair-raising boat ride. Plus, when the canyons get narrower, then you've got to worry about other traffic more. So it's a little more nerve-wracking. <laughs> An estimated four and a half million people visited in 2019, spending more than $420 million. But this year, several paved boat ramps no longer reach the water. So you've got the same number of visitors using fewer launch ramps. So you're gonna have longer lines, shorter tempers. Further downstream in a Las Vegas gated community, the Colorado River's water spurts out of a sprinkler and onto manicured grass, catching the eye of Devin Choltko, water waste investigator. And there's too much water leaving the property at the moment. So we're gonna get out of the car, throw our lights on and uh, document the spray and flow violation is what we call it. Choltko works for the Las Vegas Valley Water District. She pulls out her phone to take a video of the offending sprinklers. So. Water Waste Investigator 9393, it is Tuesday, June 15th at 8.07. Grass like this recently got a death sentence. This year, Nevada declared so-called non-functional turf illegal, lawns that are only ornamental. Chultco's agency projects that nearly 4,000 acres of turf in the Las Vegas Valley will be ripped out over the next five years. Las Vegas already restricts lawns and new developments and pays homeowners to replace their yards. So unfortunately, we, do, we are in a desert and grass is one of those high water use, users. But the Las Vegas area has kept growing during the drought, adding 315,000 people in the last decade alone. As the river keeps shrinking, demands have to shrink too. Otherwise, the whole system gets drained. Conserving now means less pain down the line, Choltko says. Um, so all of these restrictions have allowed us as a community to kind of keep populating. I mean, the, the population isn't going anywhere, you know, so we have to kind of accommodate to that. The coming shortage declaration means another round of steep cuts to water supplies, falling the hardest on Arizona farmers. If reservoirs keep dropping, further reductions are coming to Nevada, California, and Mexico. This is, used to be the riverbed. Near the river's end, Jordan Joaquin, president of the Fort Yuma-Quichan Indian tribe, stands on its banks, looking out on what used to be the start of the river's expansive delta, now just a narrow channel. So where are we standing today? If this was to be watered, this would be all covered with shrubbery, willows, cottonwood as well. So 
Not far upstream, water is drawn off to serve customers in Los Angeles and Phoenix and to irrigate crops, including local ones, says tribal council member Charles Escalani. So that's why I always tease everybody when they're from back east. I'm like, when you're eating a salad in December, thank us, because that's where it's coming from. The tribe's share of the Colorado is part of a century-long list of legal agreements among those who use it. But Joaquin says in the past, tribes were largely excluded. When tribes were consulted, if that's what they call it, it's at the very end. Decisions were already made. The entire watershed is gearing up for a new round of policy negotiations. Perennial questions are being made more urgent. Can the watershed adapt to climate change? How will everyone get by with less? And Joaquin says, how can river management be made more inclusive? Water is very important to us. You know, water is sacred to us. So the most meaningful thing is to be part of the negotiation at the table, not the back table, not the side table, but at the table of discussion. Because the answers to those questions will shape life in the West for everyone who depends on the Colorado River for decades to come. I'm Luke Runyon. Last week, Governor Newsom extended the drought emergency in the state to 50 of California's 58 counties. He also asked that Californians voluntarily reduce their water usage by 15 percent. But he stopped short of issuing a mandate. The state is already working on some measures that officials hope will keep the water flowing during the dry summer months ahead. That includes a massive rock barrier through part of the delta in Contra Costa County, which has recently been completed. The barrier is expected to preserve water supplies for millions of Californians. The $10 million emergency project is part of Governor Newsom's executive order dealing with the drought. The California Report's Keith Mezaguchi spoke with a principal engineer with the State Department of Water Resources to find out how it all works. Every tidal cycle, every tidal rise, you get saltier water pushing in from the ocean. And what happens is through either the natural melt of the snow or precipitation or the release of stored water, we're able to push the the salts out. And so there's this push and pull of the ocean pushing the salt in and the fresh water pushing it out. And really, we need to have enough fresh water to push it out. But specifically, this West Falls River channel, it allows great conveyance from the San Joaquin River on that flood tide, pushing into the flooded Franks Track Island. And what that does is on every tidal cycle, um, you're basically further injecting the salt deeper into the interior delta. So by blocking off that channel, what we're doing is we're changing the way in which water fills into Frank's track. Um, and so now we're getting water that comes into the north from Old River. And so you're also getting more water that's coming from the McCallamy and Georgiana Slough and the Delta Cross Canal, fresher Sacramento water. And that it now goes into uh, Frank's track. So by changing that plumbing and changing that dynamics, what we're able to do is we're able to preserve the salinity in the interior delta. Why is it important to keep the salty water from the Pacific Ocean and San Francisco Bay away from this area? As the salinity increases, key constituents in the water also increase. One that's a big concern is bromide. And so as the bromide increases and you disinfect that water, 
it creates disinfection byproducts. These disinfection byproducts are are toxic. Um, they're a problem. And at some point, you know, if the concentrations are too high, uh, the water that you're pulling out of the delta is no longer usable. You can't blend it, and it's no longer a water supply source. Looking at the bigger picture, what does this rock barrier mean for fighting the drought this year in California? Through these actions, we're able to conserve water in our upstream reservoirs, as well as through uh, California uh, being more mindful of their water use. So it does play a very important role in the bigger picture because specifically uh, without these actions, we'd utilize too much water. And so we'd, we'd see our reservoirs dropping too fast and we just would not be confident in when those would refill. And so this does play a very important role in that because it's one of the best ways we know of, uh, maybe only second to conservation, to be able to save some of that water so that we can use it later in the season. Jacob McQuirk is a principal engineer for the State Department of Water Resources. Jacob, thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome, Keith. Have a great day. And he was speaking with the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi. Last week, California Attorney General Rob Bonta announced guidelines for the State Department of Justice to investigate all fatal officer-involved shootings of unarmed civilians in California. These new protocols stem from the passage of last year's Assembly Bill 1506, which called for the formal establishment of California police shooting investigation teams. Bonta has said he hopes the new guidelines will strengthen accountability and transparency in investigations of officer-involved shootings. Joining me now with more on the implications of this legislation is the Executive Director of Community Advocates for Just and Moral Governance, Genevieve Jones-Wright. Genevieve, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So first, how will this legislation change how fatal officer-involved shootings are investigated? Well, the first thing is that we're actually going to have the attorney general's office do these investigations. And what that means is that for community members, this will be seen as a more neutral and detached body looking into fatalities at the hands of law enforcement officers in California. The next thing that this bill does is it requires the attorney general's office to establish a unit by 2023 that would, upon request of local police departments, review the local police department's use of force policies. And so, as you can see, this bill is very transformative in a lot of ways, and I think it will be great for our state. And so what will be the major changes in how officer-involved shootings are investigated here in San Diego? What I believe we will see in San Diego is more of a review of these shootings that has more transparency, where the attorney general will release a report that gives the basis for the determination as to whether there was a criminal offense or whether there should be the prosecution of a police officer. This is something we have not seen before. And another thing in San Diego that we haven't seen before are members of law enforcement actually be prosecuted for killing an unarmed civilian. And so we may see a change in that. So now with this legislation, does that mean that the California police shooting investigation teams will show up on the scene of a fatal officer-involved shooting and start the investigation process, start collecting evidence? Or is this something that will still be investigated the same, only having uh, this investigations team look into it? My understanding is that 
people from the attorney's general office, people who are in these specialized units who will only deal with the officer-involved shootings that end in fatalities will be deployed on the scene and will investigate. And what role will San Diego's Commission on Police Practices play in implementing and observing these new protocols? As we look to the implementation of Measure B, which revamped our former community review board and established that independent commission on police practices. While we await the finalized ordinance, it's a little difficult to tell how they will work in tandem. But what we do know is that these are community members who will be looking at and investigating complaints of police misconduct and also things like police shootings and killings. And so I think that we have the opportunity to see both of those entities work together as it relates to fatalities. How does this new guidance offer new pathways to justice for victims of police violence? Well, you know, we constantly say that no one is above the law. And when there's a failure to prosecute law enforcement officers for criminal behavior, or when community members feel that the district attorney is not fairly assessing all of the evidence available, or it's not applying the facts to the law in an impartial manner or without bias, it begins to erode trust. If there was ever trust there, but it definitely cuts against this idea that justice should be pursued on behalf of all victims. So with this bill, I am hopeful that when the attorney general's office does these independent investigations, they will, one, start to establish trust in those communities and community members will be able to trust the process so that whatever decision is made. And what's been the initial response from the community to this change in protocol? I think the community is hopeful. I believe that the community sees this as, again, a first good step because there has been a lot of mistrust of the district attorney's office and prosecuting law enforcement officers when they do kill unarmed civilians. I think they look to the state as being more neutral and detached, and therefore they would be more fair in their investigations and assessing the facts of what happened. And how is law enforcement responding to the establishment of these new investigation teams? I can say that the district attorney's office itself says that it welcomes state involvement. But here's what I would say. The proof is going to be in the pudding. This bill does not put every single officer involved shooting on the plate of the attorney general. This is only a review and investigation into those killings of unarmed civilians by law enforcement. So that means that the district attorney and local police agencies are still going to be investigating on their own any police shooting that doesn't result in a fatality or any police shooting that results in a fatality where someone actually was armed. And so what I'm hoping is that even if they say this is a welcome change, that it will actually inform how they look into investigations and how they can be more transparent with the community about how they have resolved investigations. I've been speaking with Genevieve Jones-Wright, Executive Director of Community Advocates for Just and Moral Governance. Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. President Joe Biden has pledged to end for-profit immigration detention. That's what California aims to do with state law Assembly Bill 32. But as KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports, the Biden administration is fighting that law in court. 
AB32 bans private companies from operating detention centers after the contracts with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement expire. The Trump administration sued California to invalidate the law a few days after it went into effect in January 2020. But if AB32 survives in court, it could transform the way ICE does business, not just here, but nationwide, says State Attorney General Rob Bonta, who authored the law as an assemblyman. It was always the hope that others would replicate what California has done and also ban for-profit private prisons and detention centers, which are inhumane, unjust, unsafe, unfair. California argues that private detention facilities pose, quote, an unacceptable danger to detainees and that the state has the right to regulate industries within its borders. But nearly all ICE detainees in California are held at for-profit facilities, and the federal government says AB 32 interferes with its authority to do immigration enforcement. Here's attorney Mark Stern with the U.S. Department of Justice at a court hearing last month. The Supreme Court, this court, and other courts have all held that restrictions on the government's ability to carry out its operations using contractors are impermissible when they are far less intrusive than this case. Southern California Congresswoman Norma Torres says it's time for the Biden administration to drop the lawsuit against AB 32. It's important for us as legislators uh, representing a state of, you know, California to stand up for the wishes of our state. She and two dozen other members of Congress wrote to the U.S. Attorney General to say pursuing that lawsuit goes against Biden's stated goal. At a rally in Georgia to mark his first 100 days in office, Biden addressed protesters in the crowd and repeated his campaign pledge. There should be no private prisons, period. None, period. That's what they're talking about, private detention centers. They should not exist, and we are working to close all of them. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has requested nearly $2 billion from Congress to keep the immigration detention system pretty much intact. That worries Jackie Gonzalez with Immigrant Defense Advocates in Sacramento. His decision to side with private prison companies won by continuing to pursue Trump's litigation against the state of California and two, failing to like make good on his campaign promises are, is something that no one is going to forget. And he has the opportunity to reverse course. But thus far, his behavior has been a betrayal. Congresswoman Torres and State Attorney General Bonta say they hope the Biden administration will work with California on this one and consider alternatives to jailing immigrants for the civil violation of not having valid papers. These are civil cases. and. Uh, folks don't need to be detained at all. They can um, come to all of their hearings and and go through whatever process is part of their individualized case uh, without being uh, detained and without uh, taxpayers wasting resources on locking people up in cages. An ICE spokesperson says the agency won't comment on litigation, but that ICE needs operational flexibility to house people in its custody. The White House and the U.S. Department of Justice did not return requests for comment. For The California Report, I'm Farida Javala romero
Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh has the day off. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando has been hosting Cinema Junkie since 2015. The podcast took a quarantine break to retool and returns on July 14th. Cinema Junkie is KPBS's longest-running podcast, and it is fueled by Beth's addiction to movies. Here's a preview of this month's themed podcast. As far back as I can remember, I've always been addicted to film. Whether it's Martin Scorsese or Monty Python. Help, help, I'm being repressed! Paul Newman or Pam Greer. Death is too easy for you. I want you to suffer. Hong Kong action or film noir. Baby, I don't care. What can I say? I just get high on movies, and I have my dad to thank. He kept me home from elementary school one day to watch On the Waterfront because he felt it was an important film about power, corruption, and loyalty. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. That laid the groundwork for me thinking about film in a larger context. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. I'm Beth Accomando, host of Cinema Junkie, where you can satisfy your celluloid addiction and mainline film 24-7. Cinema Junkie has been on a quarantine break, but returns with some exciting new features. It now weighs in at a leaner 30-minute runtime and has new Share Your Addiction and Cold Turkey segments where celebrities and listeners get to rant and rave about movies. I know that you're like me. You have that one movie that you love that you have the hardest time defending because nobody else on the planet does. Plus, there'll be a companion video for each podcast called Geeky Gourmet, where I show you how to make a drink or food item themed to the movies discussed in the podcast. Bacon is key to all Hobbit cooking. Butter. Lots of butter. Lots of cream. For Cinema Junkie, I speak with celebrities, scholars, cinephiles, geeks, and people who just get as intoxicated by film as I do. To me, Chuck Turner is everything that's great about an exploitation movie. It's just offensive enough, and it's just politically incorrect enough, and there's just enough action and sex and violence, and it's just like, I watch it, and it's like I'm a cat getting its tummy rubbed. I'm just purring, and sort of like, oh, this is exploitation perfection. That was one of my favorite guests, author David F. Walker, talking about black exploitation. In honor of Comic-Con, which returns virtually later in July, the theme for this month's podcast is a celebration of pop culture. So on July 14th, I speak to Arnold T. Blumberg about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He taught the first college course on that topic. Here's a clip from my interview. As we were watching the movies... I would turn to the students to find out, what do you think? You know, what do you think this character is doing? Why this? How it represents? Of course, the core movie, the reason why I did the course in the first place, the one that was sort of the the pitch, was Winter Soldier. Because my argument was, and that's where you mentioned the thing about freedom for, you know, for security. There's so much in that movie that's like they deal with drone strikes. They deal with the surveillance state, you know, the freedom for security issue. Um, and there was so much in Winter Soldier, my, my pitch at the time was that at this point in things for Marvel, 
all they had to do was make a really cool, adventurous Captain America movie. They did not have to do anything else. And yet, what they wound up doing was a movie that actually had some things to say in and around all the adventure and excitement. And it demonstrated that these movies operate on different levels. It's not just a frivolous adventure. You can also incorporate these things and make something out of that. And when we would talk about it in class, it really didn't take much work to get to that. I mean, to be perfectly honest, too, some people might think it's like, oh, I don't know how you come up with these things. But really, for some of us, I guess, you look at a movie and you think, how can you not notice that? It's not exactly subtle. They're in, in many cases, too, they're, they have the characters practically just scream the themes out loud. It's not like they're really hiding any of the things they're doing. But I guess some people like to look at a different level of a movie and they don't necessarily think about the other part. And for some of us, we look at it and go, well, you know, obviously it's about this. And when we were in the classroom, everybody would get really energized and particularly if they enjoyed it and sometimes particularly if they didn't. They would have things to say about why that was, and conversation would go from there. Well, in these films, even though they're entertaining, they also have a way of educating or at least, you know, raising issues about ethics, morality, race, gender, class. And how did you see Marvel films kind of touching on those? Well, I mean, it's like everything else. These movies exist in our world. They've been made by people here. Everybody who has helped to craft these movies has brought themselves to it. They can't not reflect all the various things going on in our country, in our culture, in the time when they're made. For example, in Marvel, they're as guilty as anyone else in this culture as well of having flaws of, of incorrectly or improperly or inappropriately representing some things because they are reflecting the culture in which they're made. So like, for example, it's not all positive, but it's also can be very instructive and telling about where we are. So like, for example, like we're just now getting to the point where the Black Widow movie is coming out and Captain Marvel came out and there's a sequel to that. But it's like it took this long before we had women in lead roles in, in, in this and it's taken until phase four before we're going to have an Asian lead in one of these and, and the Black Panther movies and the sadness of losing Chadwick Boseman, but we had that. But why did it take that long? It's like there are no easy answers because these are problems and even Marvel is not immune to these kind of problems. Marvel is still a very white story and it's a very male story. And this goes all the way back to the source material and to the people that created it and to the comics that preceded it. And it's important at the very least that if there are things that are bad about these movies, that's also worth talking about. And maybe that gets people thinking about how can you make it better? And in some respects, maybe it's, it's certainly not enough, but in some respects, we are seeing some things getting better. So there are ways that these movies can be instructive and educational as much for the things they're doing wrong as for the things that they might deliberately or sort of tangentially trying to communicate that are good. That's also, I feel, part of the importance of media literacy is you got to look at these things and not feel like you're a fan. Like the, as much as I'm like, I think playfully, I hope people understand playfully being a bit more derogatory toward DC. It's like there are a lot of great things about the DC characters as well. And there's a lot of stuff that's bad about the Marvel characters. 
you're not really beholden to any of these people. They're big corporations that don't care about you, so you don't need to feel like you're loyal to anything. Just come at it with your own perspective and see it for what it is. We explore the MCU on July 14th, and then on the 28th, Cinema Junkie does a crew call to look at the contribution of stunt people with Brad Martin and Mickey Fashioncello. You can find the full episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. That was Beth Accomando. Her revamped podcast debuts on Wednesday, and you can join Beth on July 15th for a live Twitch relaunch party. For details, go to kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.